Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. This is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet. It's stormy weather outside, that's for sure. Although, having just spent the last six days in Russia, where not a drop of snow or ice lasts for a second, on the roads or the pavements is swept, shoveled, salted, sanded away, and nothing comes to a halt. It's a bit surprising to be told that half of my staff this evening haven't made it into work because of transport difficulties. Both of the train lines from Glasgow uh, and Edinburgh to London canceled because of the weather. The BBC BBC One, a five billion pound a year business, off air because of a storm. Makes you wonder how the Russians can do it and we cannot. Although that's true in more ways than one and I'll come back to those issues uh, in a minute. I want to begin with the breaking and extraordinary news coming out of the Irish Republic where little Leo Varadkar, the darling of Brussels, the foghorn, the mouthpiece of the European Union, has lost the general election and may even now, as I said earlier, be on a plane to Brussels to a well-padded political and financial exile. Sinn Féin, once derided as the political wing of the IRA, so toxic that their leader could not be heard on British television. His voice had to be substituted by an actor. It was good work, actually, for the Actors' Union back in the day. But Mrs. Thatcher would not give them the oxygen of publicity. Well, they didn't need it. They were kept off the Irish television. Leaders' debates, even though they were up there in the mix, in the polls, but they have emerged as top dog. We'll be talking to Kevin Marr, a very considerable expert and long-standing guest of the mother of all talk shows about that. We'll be asking him whether Sinn Féin can now form a government, what kind of government that would be and what that will mean on the issue of the border, on the issue of Irish reunification. I make no uh, apology for saying that I have myself supported Sinn Féin all of my life. So if I seem extra pumped this evening, it's because I wasn't quite expecting a result like this. But it does go to show that small parties can become big parties, and big parties can become small parties, and very quickly indeed. The Labour Party, for example, looks determined to become a small party. It's already 80 seats down in Parliament and looks set, certain, 
according to the bookies, 10 to 1 on at the bookies, to pick as its next leader a knight of the realm and the man responsible for the policy shift which destroyed the Red Wall, drove Labour into exile in the metropolitan areas and cost them the election. You might call that masochism. I certainly would. But it's partly the fault of the Corbynites that came up with an alternative candidate who just doesn't cut it. And that is increasingly obvious with every day. Even in Jeremy Corbyn's own constituency, Labour Party, they picked Keir Starmer over Rebecca Long-Bailey. So a lot of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, of Labour members are going to have to face a difficult decision. Is it business as usual under Sir Keir, the champion of the EU, of NATO, of uh, the whole Tony Blair agenda? Or are they going to be looking for somewhere else? Or perhaps leaving politics altogether? It's a pretty sad end, isn't it, to the not even five years of the Jeremy Corbyn era. And what a pity, too, that Corbyn fell just as Bernie Sanders was rising. Bernie Sanders now is bang dead on to be the Democratic Party's candidate in the November election in the United States, as exclusively predicted here by me long, long, long ago, long before anyone in the mainstream was prepared to give it house room. It's amazing how often I'm right. In fact, if I ever write another memoir, it will be called I Was Right About Everything. And I was right about Bernie. He is the only man that can defeat Donald Trump, and he is going to be the winner of this primary contest, unless, of course, they cheat him, unless, of course, they stop him by undemocratic, unorthodox means. And that, of course, cannot be ruled out, especially in the wake of the farce in Iowa, where in a caucuses process, they invented an app. Now, for those of you who don't know what a caucus process is, you book a hall, and you ask people to stand in different places in the hall and you count their heads and you know who's won. Why you need an app for that is entirely beyond me. You only need someone that can count heads and an old-fashioned telephone to ring the result in to the headquarters and somebody with a pencil and paper at the other end. But now, a week after the event, we still do not have the final result in Iowa. And that's because Bernie Sanders won. And they wanted to stop the momentum from that win, taking him to a landslide victory, perhaps, in New Hampshire this week. And we'll be talking to Garland Nixon, a good friend of ours from Sputnik in the United States, who knows a thing or two about American politics and Bernie Sanders. We'll be talking to him in the course of the show about what happened in Iowa, what's likely to happen in New Hampshire, and what are the options open to the political orthodoxy, the political establishment in the United States to stop Bernie. And anybody who knows anything about the United States knows 
that those options are quite wide-ranging. And we'll be talking about China. I've just come back, as I said, from Russia. I've been on four airplanes in the last uh, few days. I've got to tell you that there is something like panic struck in the hearts of all kinds of people when they see someone who looks like they might be Chinese, someone like my wife, someone like my children. People are wearing masks. People are shying away from other people because they fear the corona virus. China has moved mountains to try and stop this coronavirus, to try and restrict it. But there are so many people in China and so many Chinese people in the world that it's not proving easy to restrict its spread. A lot of people have now died, far more have survived but have had the virus, have tested positive for the virus now in virtually every country in the world. Cruise ships in the United States this week being pulled over into harbor and sick people being carried off them. It's going to do wonders for the cruise ship business over the rest of the winter and the spring, I can tell you. It is, of course, still a moot point of what this coronavirus is, how it struck China in the way that it did. It's a moot point whether China could have handled it better. There are people who say that the attempt to stop the panic, the cover-up, is often worse than the actual problem itself. I'll be discussing that with a distinguished guest from China also later in the show. We'll be talking about British politics, Irish politics, American politics, politics everywhere in the world. We'll be talking even about heroes because tonight we begin the long-awaited induction of the first candidate into the mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame. We've even got a beautiful new graphic. And tell me if you like the new look. I'm told I'm looking purple, papal, purple. That'll suit me. Tell me what you think uh, of that. We'll be uh, inducting the first of our heroes into the Hall of Fame. That nomination is mine. I'll be making that nomination, but you can make subsequent nominations. Just let us know, preferably by email, but also by tweet, by uh, any other means who you think should be in our Hall of Fame and give reasons why. And we'll make an adjudication during each week as to who the next inductee will be. In parallel, from next week, there'll be a wall of shame. And you equally can do the nominating for that. Now, we've got a poll. Poll number one is this. Following Sinn Féin's success, will there be a united Ireland in A, 10 years, B, 20 years, C, never? You can vote now on my Twitter feed. I think 10 years is a bit of an exaggeration, actually. I think that the reunification of Ireland will happen more quickly than that and will happen with the kind of sweep that the reunification of Germany happened. I think it will be a moment in time which will sweep away the border, sweep away the partition, 
of that small island. And I wanted to take three or four minutes just to educate those who perhaps have not had my background as a child of Irish immigrants, have not paid the closest attention, shall we say, to how we got to a stage where a tiny island was partitioned into two countries in the first place. The Irish people were conquered by the Scots, first of all, and then by the English, and then by Scotland and Ireland together as the British Empire many centuries ago. The Scots were there first in the 17th century before the Union, before Britain was ever invented. They conquered a part of the north of Ireland. Soon Britain would conquer all of Ireland and would subjugate it as a colonial territory, exactly as all the other colonial territories, from India through Africa and the Arab uh, Middle East and so on. Ireland was a colony of Great Britain. The Irish people never accepted it. From centuries, successive generations produced resistance, upheavals, uprisings, revolutions, bloody repression. Everything that could be done by an occupied people was done by the Irish people and everything that could be done by the colonizer to repress them was done up to and including mass murder, famine and mass immigration and deportation uh, to the colonies of those who stood against the British occupation. In 1916, a great blow was struck against the British Empire on Easter weekend of 1916 in Dublin, in the General Post Office, when an uprising took control of a part of Dublin, was ruthlessly repressed, its leaders uh, cruelly executed, including the great James Connolly, executed whilst tied to a chair because he could not stand up on account of his wounds. The leaders of the Irish uprising, the rebellion in 1916 were cruelly dispatched. The uprising was defeated. But just like the Tet Offensive in Vietnam in 1968, that which was a military failure was a political success. Because within a few short years, the Irish people as a whole had voted for Irish independence and unity, voted for a party called Sinn Féin. At that point, the British decided that if most of Ireland could not be held onto, if Ireland's four green fields could not continue to be occupied, then one of those green fields would remain in bondage. And that's how we got somewhere called capital N, Northern capital I, Ireland. It was gerrymandered in a way that they thought would ensure a pro-British majority would live there forever and keep that small part of Ireland, six counties out of 32 counties, as part of the United Kingdom. But they didn't account for several things, one of them inexplicable. As soon to be the father of my sixth child, I've got to tell you, 
we produce, by the grace of God, a lot of children. And the population demographic has been tilting dramatically in the six counties towards an Irish majority, towards a nationalist majority, a majority for reuniting the country. They didn't take account of the fact that many educated, graduate, achieving people from the unionist population in the six counties would not prefer in the long run to live in such abnormal, unusual, rigged and sectarian situation and would leave and go and live in England, go and live elsewhere. They did not take account of the fact that educated, intelligent members of the unionist population would one day conclude, not least because of the issue of the European Union, that if I'm to remain in the European Union, well, I'll have to reunify the island of Ireland, and thus everyone can be satisfied. They did not take account of the march of history. Now, reunification is ineluctable, unstoppable, and I think will be along much sooner than 10 years. But you can vote A, 10 years, B, 20 years, C, never. 52% of you say 10 years so far, 12% of you say 20 years, and 36% of you say never. If you want to argue the toss with me on that one, you're welcome. The fiasco of the Democratic Party's caucuses in Iowa are still trending, even though it's a very small place and a rather small number of people's votes are in play. As I explained earlier, it's inexplicable that they needed an app to count the few thousands of voters in the Iowa caucuses. It's even more inexplicable that that app was developed by a company, a large shareholder in which was one of the candidates, the candidate who claimed that he'd won, even though he lost. And that now is accepted as fact. Pete Buttigieg is not the winner of the Iowa caucuses, though he successfully muddied the water over the first few days in the wake of the caucuses by claiming that he was. Now, clearly he wasn't. Sanders won won by several thousand votes, but there's everything to play for in New Hampshire now, and it may be that Buttigieg's momentum was boosted by the Iowa uh, fiasco. It may be that Bernie Sanders' momentum was blunted by the fiasco in Iowa. One man knows the answers to all these questions. He's my colleague from the United States. He's Garland Nixon. And he's on the line now. Garland, welcome back. Great to be back, George. Very nice to see you. Sorry I missed you when you were in England. But let's talk about Iowa first of all. What's Certainly. the latest state of play in the Iowa caucuses fiasco? 
Well, I, I think we're at a point where, at this point, the numbers and things like that are irrelevant. Yeah. The fact that it was blatantly obvious that the, um, the, the the Democratic Party put their thumb on the scale once again, no, they put their entire foot on the scale and jumped up and down on it, um, has, I, I think it's going to have a profound effect on U.S. politics for a long time to come. Uh, looking forward, I don't know if you know it, but Joe Biden, I'm thinking he's in a world of trouble because just today he referred to a, um, a, 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 a voter who was asking him a question, a young lady, he referred to as a lying dog-faced pony soldier. Wow. He's, yeah. he's lost. He, I mean, if there's a big loser from Iowa and since, it's Joe Biden, isn't it? I, I think his well, campaign is fatally hold below the waterline. Yes, but Joe Biden, I said from the very beginning, you know, if you look at his history and you look at what they were trying to project about Joe Biden, inevitability, they had nothing else. So I never considered Joe Biden as a real serious, um, as a real serious problem in the long run. Um, we've seen them, you know, they pushed Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and then Biden. They're very, very desperate. I think what we've learned from Iowa is the Democratic Party is extremely desperate and they don't have a plan. So all they do is they try to put out fires, but for all they did, for all of the work they did, Bernie Sanders still, they were unable to hide that he got more votes than anyone else. And if you look ahead of Iowa, Pete Buttigieg, if he's, if he's their guy, he's like under, under 10%, under 6 or 7% in most other states. So he's not an option for them going forward. I think Bloomberg gets going to be, unless they redraft Hillary Clinton. What do you think? Well, you know, that's again, if you think about what we're saying, is it going to be Biden? Is it going to be Buttigieg? Is it going to be Bloomberg? Here's what we know. They have no plan. It's, they're kind of like when a person falls in the water and they're drowning and they reach and just grab for anything they can get their, whole, their, their hands on. That's what they're doing. Meanwhile, they're up against someone in Bernie Sanders who has a solid movement and volunteers. There's no way in the world that this helter-skelter, um, frightened, uh, uh, um, backed into a corner party is going to be able to deal with a stable political movement. I agree with you. And like you, I have long predicted that Sanders cannot be stopped, at least by orthodox and democratic means. Uh, are there any short of the Jack Kennedy solution, the Bobby Kennedy solution, the Dr. Martin Luther King solution? Are there any solutions for the power uh, in the United States short of those? Here's what I would say. There are no above board solutions, because if you look at the numbers, if you look at what happened to them, they were able to knock Bernie out in 2016. But he's had, what, three and a half years to build his machine. So they had no one else who they were prepping for this. Thankfully, you know, the, you, you've probably heard the old Persian quote, uh, thank God for making my enemies fools. Thankfully for Bernie Sanders, they didn't prepare for this. So now, no, they don't have anything. I've said all along, Bernie Sanders only hope is to beat them so bad that they can't steal it. That was his only hope. From the looks of things now, he might do it. So he's going to push them into a corner. At some point, they're going to have to either make some desperate move. And, and the way I see a desperate move is they're sitting in a corner with Bernie and there's the grenade. And Bernie's saying, if you're going to pull the pin, pull it. Because to take Bernie out when he's leading the way Bernie's going to be leading will be the death of the party. Yeah, although just like here in Britain, where the Blairites were more than ready to blow up their own party, 
rather than allow Jeremy Corbyn to lead it to victory. The same is true of the establishment Democrats, isn't it? Hillary Clinton, yes, yes. Uh, uh, Bernie did 39 uh, rallies for her. She's done 39 television interviews already against him. Yeah, here's the difference I see. There's a major difference, and that is this. They were able to isolate Jeremy Corbyn, and they spent a long time isolating him, and they were able, able, even able to isolate him within the party. Bernie Sanders has always operated as a movement, as the Bernie Sanders movement. They can't isolate Bernie Sanders. So, so now, in reality, the way a lot of the burners, the Bernie Sanders people see it is, the DNC is not attacking Bernie Sanders. They're attacking us. They're attacking the voters. In fact, Barack Obama said, look, if Bernie Sanders runs away with it, if all of you voters out there decide that you want him, well, then I'll have to step in and make sure that you can't have him. So in reality, because Bernie carries a movement with him uh, and, and, and a new and very young and very motivated movement with him, they're not attacking Bernie. They're attacking this movement. And I think Bernie is kind of uh, protected by his movement to some, to, at least in the short run, to some extent, from these media. You'll notice, Bernie picks up numbers every time Warren attacks him. Everybody that attacks him, he gets more votes. So uh, I, I think there's a far different dynamic. And those who think that they're going to play the, the, the Jeremy Corbyn, uh, uh, um, you know, moves on Bernie are very, very misguided. Even the, uh, the uh, um, playbook attack uh, on the anti-Semitism issue, uh, that uh, caused fatal damage to Corbyn has backfired uh, on APAC in the United States, where they launched a kind of Corbyn-style attack on Sanders and the radicals in the Democratic Party. They've had to back down and apologize for it, showing that if you stand up and fight back, then you have a chance to win. Isn't that right? Yes, and the other thing they have is what Bernie has is, and you know, there are a lot of people that are that are upset. Well, the Bernie Sanders people online, they're you know, they're crass, they're angry, they fight back. Well, that's Bernie's strength because Bernie really, I mean, he doesn't have to mix it up. There are people online, there are pundits, there are um, there's an entire section of new media that's pro Bernie. So Bernie, when when Bernie's attacked, there is an attack force out there of real people not bots, real people that go back and fight for him. And as I said, Bernie's a different animal because he has this angry online and offline army that's willing to stand up and throw punches back. And, and, and I think that's one of the things they didn't see coming. So what happens uh, in New Hampshire? What's the uh, current state of the betting there, Garland? I'm looking, so uh, just to say myself, I'm looking at probably, I'm looking at Bernie with a, a double-digit win. Let's not forget, that's where he started the big blowout. So I'm looking at a double-digit uh, win for Bernie. Now, they're making a big deal out of Buttigieg. Even if Buttigieg has a good, uh, you know, let's say he gets 20% or he comes in second. There's nothing. He starts to disappear after that. He's a flash in the pan. And as I said, if you look at the numbers after, after New Hampshire, I don't see what their plan is for Buttigieg from then on. Not many people on this side of the water have ever heard of this guy or can even pronounce his name. Tell us something about him. 
Well, the thing about a lot is coming out about uh, Pete Buttigieg now, and one of the the nicknames that he has is the Juan Guaido of American politics. In that um, he was he the guy's a mayor of a town where there's a hundred thousand people, and former, he expects to become president mayor. of a country with three hundred and thirty million isn't people. He, isn't he the uh, former mayor? Yeah, former exactly. He's, former he, mayor. He's the former that. mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana. Yes, and he has some very uncomfortable ties to the intelligence community. So there are a lot of people who are looking at this guy who are very concerned about his ties to the intelligence community, who's looking at what happened in Iowa, how he was intricately involved in this shysty shadow app. And so the questions are rising about him, but I don't think that's going to matter, because even with all of that said, if you look at the numbers for Pete Buttigieg after New Hampshire, they just start to crater. There's nothing for him in the long run. Even if there's nothing else bad about him, he's just not making a case to the American working person that uh, would 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 uh, be something that would they would want to vote for. Would be a reason that they want to vote for him. Now uh, Warren and Biden both their campaigns are in trouble if they do badly in New Hampshire, aren't they? Yeah, well, you know, generally Iowa and New Hampshire cleans out the uh, cleans out the riffraff, as they say, for this reason. Because at that point, you have um, you have a, a, a lot of donors, very very wealthy donors, who are making investments. And after the first two states, they start thinking, well, you know, these investments aren't looking so good with someone who doesn't have the numbers. And so I think this, Ber not for Bernie. Bernie people, they don't have much in the first place. They're getting them five, ten, twenty dollars, and they can do it over and over and over. But for some of these other people who have the big donors, yes, they're don't. And the reason is donors. Once a donor sees their investment starting to fall apart, they look for somewhere else to put their money. And uh, Warren is the senator for the next door. She must have started out thinking she could win New Hampshire. Now she she must be uh, hoping she'll be third. Yeah, well, you know, things are getting kind of desperate uh, for Elizabeth Warren, and I don't expect her to be around much longer. If you look at that, here's the interesting thing. If you look at the candidates around um, Bernie Sanders, after New Hampshire, there aren't many viable candidates left. If you look after New Hampshire, it starts to look like a really ugly blowout um, uh, 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 for Bernie Sanders. So I don't see how many of these people stick around. I think there's going to be maybe Bernie and a couple people. In fact, um, that's why they're going to Bloomberg probably, and they're looking at Bloomberg, because the rest of these people won't be able to raise any funds. He'll be the only one left that can self-fund, and he is the perfect target. They're setting up a perfect target for Bernie. Bernie Sanders to point at this billionaire and say nothing. He's just going to stand on stage. Probably, Bernie will just probably stand on stage and just point at him and just go like this. <laughs> and of course, if Bloomberg was the nominee, that would be two New York billionaires fighting out in November. That would be a great picture, wouldn't it? It would be very interesting, but here's what I learned from, from, from Bloomberg. Think about this. We're, we're reading all of these articles about, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party insiders, the elitists are looking for a plan. Think about how out of touch these people are. They look at Bernie Sanders and their plan 
is Mike Bloomberg and Deval Patrick. If you think that Mike Bloomberg or Deval Patrick is a valid option for voters to Bernie Sanders, you have no chance of beating Bernie Sanders because you are so out of touch with the voters that you're stumbling around, you know, like, a, I mean, you're just stumbling around lost. So in a way, it's a good sign because what are they going to come up with next? You know, a Donald Trump Jr., I guess. Maybe they'll figure, well, if we can't beat him with a Trump, we'll get a, a second Trump. Yeah, uh, now, you know, you, you brushed that aside, but is there any possibility of Hillary Clinton deciding that, uh, you know, I, ca I can't stand by and allow uh, Bernie Sanders to, uh, to walk this? Uh, I'm going to enter the race and claim what was my, uh, what was my entitlement back in uh, 2016. Any chance of that? Well, you know, I would have said no. Uh, you know, a couple of months ago, I would have said no. These people aren't this stupid. But what after I've seen what I've seen in Iowa and their plan to bring in Deval Patrick and Bloomberg, yeah, they're that stupid. Sadly, so the fact of the matter is, they may come out and say, well, you know, we'll we'll go with Hillary. What could possibly go wrong there? But the only way they could get a Hillary in would be on the convention floor yeah. to put Hillary in. Who only knows knows who else in? But but I, I think they do it because. Based on the um, errors that they've made now, based on the grand mistakes that they've made, nothing they do shocks me. If you can come up with any idea that's so absurd and stupid that everyone in a pub would laugh at it, then that's probably the plan that these idiots will come up with. <laughs> Garland Nixon, a brilliant spot. Thanks very much indeed for kicking off the mother of all talk shows. Now, as I said earlier, I've been on four airplanes in the last few days, and I can tell you, uh, traveling with a woman who looks Chinese uh, certainly attracts some startled looks. It may have been her beauty, it may have been her grace, it may have been her overall wondrousness, but as people gazed as we walked past, wondering why she wasn't wearing a mask, I've got to tell you that the panic over the coronavirus is now endemic even if the virus is not, although if not endemic, it is widespread. Now, I put my cards on the table. I think that China has reacted in a way which no other country in the world is currently capable of reacting to this devastating health emergency. I believe that reflects the strong central state that is a hallmark of the People's Republic of China. I believe it reflects their centrally planned economy where the state has the decisive role in economic and social life in the country. I believe that's why China will defeat the coronavirus. But there are people, and uh, they have a point of view, have a case, I think, that say in the early days of the emergence of this coronavirus, China made some important mistakes in trying to cover it up and trying to uh, shoot the piano player and trying to uh, shoot the messenger uh, in the early days and that they have not done as well in fighting this virus as people like me think that they have. On FaceTime now, we have Tom McGregor uh, of CCTV.com, a commentator and editor based in China. Tom, a very big welcome to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you invited me.
No, Tom, uh, I, I put my cards on the table. I think that uh, China has not only handled the coronavirus magnificently, but is the only country in the world that is currently capable of uh, reacting to such an emergency in such a way. Uh, but there have been criticisms. How does it look to you from China? How much self-criticism is permitted in China about the handling of this affair? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, you know, nothing's nobody's perfect and no government is perfect. And obviously, at the beginning, there were a few delays in how China was handling the virus. But you got to understand that a lot of times when you hear media stories about the virus, there's always talk, oh, there's going to be another pandemic. And then it never turns out that way. Well, in this case, it almost turned into a pandemic. And so the moment China realized that, then they were very serious and then they put in the quarantines and they they did a lot to, uh, and they're also working with who? Uh, there's all these claims that they're, China's not working with who. That's nonsense. They're very, they're working closely with a lot of governments and a lot of countries and a lot of, uh, a lot of people uh, as well. So what's really going on is that the media, especially the Western media, the British media, as well as the American media have been very hard hitting on the Chinese, and this is not the right time for it. No, uh, in fact, uh, the first action of the uh, British and American governments was to contribute to a sense of panic, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, instead they, they of uh, flying, instead of flying in uh, help, they were flying out uh, as exactly. quickly as they possibly could, shutting their consulates and so on. I was very upset about that. I, it was funny because my wife is Chinese, and she was asking, "And what's going on? Why are they sending Americans out?" And I said, "I'm not leaving." Unless, I'm, I'm here. There, there's no reason for, for creating this kind of panic because if somebody likes me, I'm working in the media, uh, and, and I'm leaving China, then, then people are going to get real nervous. So I'm not leaving. And, and I have a Chinese wife. She's a Chinese citizen. We have a son here. We're here in Beijing. And we have no plans to leave or, or, or run out of here. Uh, we're going to do our best. Uh, we have a quarantine right now. Uh, we do have to work at home, and we—it's—you can't really do much outside. But the fact is, is, is this is—you know—we're just trying to help do our part to help. And if we were to travel, we're putting people at risk. I mean, I'm not sick. I'm healthy. My family's healthy. But you never know because there's a—it takes a, a two-week incubation incubation period. So. The best thing to do is just stay indoors and, and just, uh, you know, bear it in silence. And, and uh, China will overcome this. 
Well, your wife is Chinese. My wife looks Chinese, at least to the yeah. uneducated. And as we right. were traveling through, uh, through Switzerland, uh, Zurich Airport, uh, but also uh, at Heathrow, uh, we were guaranteed the best seat in the house everywhere we went because people actually now move away from you if you look Chinese <laughs> and you're I'm not, not surprised. wearing a mask. I know. I'm not surprised by that. And it's not a Chinese virus, by the way. No. And, and what we, is need, it, to know, Tom? we what? need to let people know about that, yeah. that it's not just a Chinese virus. Yeah, I got hit in China, but there's always other viruses that happen in Africa, in America. Uh, uh, recently, I, I found out some statistics that in America, this flu virus has killed thousands of people, a whole lot more than what, what the coronavirus is doing. And I even knew of people on my Facebook who, who I personally knew, and they had family members who were killed by this flu. So this is no joking matter. Uh, these viruses are, are, are killing people and it's dangerous. And I think part of it is just that it, it was bound to happen. You know, you're going to have these kind of super bugs and, and they're going to they're going to spread, and it, it's inevitable. It's, this is not just a case of it's a Chinese virus. Uh, it can happen in any other country as well. What do you know about the virus? I mean, neither of us are doctors, Tom. Sure, but, I know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a scientist. Is it, uh, is, is it entirely novel, or is it closely related to previously seen viruses? Well, there's 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 diff different theories, and 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 you also have some crackpot conspiracy theories that there's some, you know, uh, Wuhan had some type of uh, bio weapons. Uh, you know, it, it, you're you're gonna it, it's a little bit tricky because as a scientist, I, I would not know exactly what type of uh, virus it is and, and the specifics of it, but whatever whatever it is, and they said that there was some pangolin animal that somehow was a carrier of it. But the thing is, the scientists are still working on trying to figure that out. And when they figure that out, then that can help with finding a vaccine and finding some cure for it. Because you have to find out what exactly the illness is so you can address it directly. And the Chinese are working really hard on that in Wuhan, as well as in Shanghai and Beijing. Uh, all, all the scientists and medical staff are acting in a very heroic manner to, to handle the coronavirus right now. I mean, we only eat uh, nice animals like uh, cows and lambs and oh, fish okay. and chicken and yeah, turkey yeah. and, uh, yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, uh, pigs. Uh, we, we only eat these animals. The Chinese, on the other hand, <laughs> they eat a whole different kind of animal. And well, that is one uh, of the, uh, one like of the racist uh, tropes yeah, like uh, here. Address, address that. that. Yeah, yeah we're, not, we're not eating monkeys. We're not eating bats. Uh, this theory that that the Chinese love eating bats or monkeys. I have lived in China for 10 years. I have never witnessed at any time some a Chinese person, and, and I have a Chinese wife who's eaten monkeys or bats. I mean, that that's a joke. And I think you do have maybe some of these wildlife uh, places. It's possible that they were exotic animals and some of the people wanted to have them as pets. But I really doubt that they were cooking them for dinner. That's that's total nonsense. I have not. I don't know anyone who 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 does who has these kind of dietary habits in China. I have not met, and I have spent a lot of time in rural areas as well. My wife is from the rural area. They don't eat bats. They don't eat monkeys. That's that's nonsense. It's racist as well. No. And the British media is the one who was posting that kind of nonsense. The Daily Mail and all this. Uh, the Sun, I mean, crazy articles that they were posting. 
I, uh, I read somewhere that there was 100,000 foreigners in Wuhan just prior mm -hmm. to the outbreak of the epidemic for, for some sports uh, festival, I think. Uh, is that a fact? And could that have anything yeah, to do I, with I this? Yeah, I think it, there, there's probably some truth to it. You got to also realize that before the quarantine was in effect, as I mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes you hear of a bug and then there's a few media stories, but it's a lot of times like, you know, the boy who cried wolf. Are you really sure this is the real deal this time? And so it took about a week or two before the Wuhan officials realized that this was a really serious virus. And during that week or two, if there were major events, they were not stopped. So, yes, I do believe that was a, a strong possibility. Now, uh, what's the prognosis? Is this going to get much worse before it gets better? Have we reached peak coronavirus yet? Yeah, I've seen I've seen some articles. They said that it's going to be another week of, of some higher numbers uh, at most. But this was 10 days ago. So they said a week to 10, uh, 10 days, you're going to have a, a higher numbers every day, more people dying. And then it's going to reach, say, that inflection point where then it starts to be a little bit of a decline. But the good news right now is that more people are being cured and and released from the hospital who were di first diagnosed with the illness than people who are dying. So that's already good news, is that a lot of people are already being treated and they are able to leave the hospital and return to their home in a very healthy state. Tom McGregor, thanks for joining us. Stay healthy, you and your family, and best wishes to all the people in China. Thanks for joining us. Let's take a quick break. Uh, here's the second poll. Which film should win Best Picture at the Oscars tonight? A, 1917, B, Parasite, C, Joker. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. But the big news is, and it's been all night, and it's going to get even bigger, I think, over the next uh, day or two, and that is the incredible result in the Irish Republic, where all three parties are, at best at best, equal, but where Sinn Féin might be outperforming the exit poll and maybe robbed only of an even bigger victory by the fact they didn't put up uh, a full slate of candidates. Now, uh, my old friend and yours, Kevin Marr, uh, a former Labour advisor, the author of the best book on the inevitability of a united ireland is back on the show to talk us through it kevin welcome thank you very much indeed for Good evening, uh, George. joining us uh it's uh, a red letter day or a green uh letter day uh let's analyze it uh first and foremost what's your latest information on what the likely makeup of the doyle will be when the dust has settled well, as you say, George, it's, it's, a, it's a fiendishly complicated uh, system that they've got in the Irish Republic. Multi-member constituencies, a uh, lot of preferential voting, um, single transferable vote. So there's a lot of counting takes place and then recounting and recounting. At the moment, what we've got is about, I think there's about uh, 33, 34 seats that have been uh, declared 
of those, Sinn Féin has got 23 of them. So, tw so at this early stage of the count, there is, it's an important threshold for Sinn Féin. It's topped the popular vote in terms of first preferences. So in a sense, it's won the election in that respect. But as you say, it's, it's a very packed field with um, Fianna Foyle and Fianna, Fianna Gael, um, close behind. What we've, what we've seen effectively in the last 24 hours is the emergence of three-party politics in the Irish Republic. The two other parties, Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael, have basically run Ireland for the last hundred years since partition, since the creation of the Irish Free State and later the Irish Republic. So it's, it's an earthquake in terms of um, a new entrant, Sinn Féin. It's been a marginal force in, in Irish politics in the South, uh, traditionally. Until 1986, of course, um, Sinn Féin and the Republican movement didn't recognise uh, partition and, and, the, and then the second sort of state, if you like, in the, the, the Irish southern state. So they didn't field candidates. So they've made up a lot of ground in recent years. And this is, I think, tonight, you know, a, a really big seminal moment in Irish politics. I don't think anything's ever going to be the same again. And I think there's that sense that because of Sinn Féin's um, historical connections as the political wing of the IRA, there's been a sense with some Southern Irish voters that they're a breed apart, that they're not quite democratic enough for them. And the other two parties have very much played that even in this campaign, but it's, it really is now a, a case of diminishing returns. And, and you know, and Sinn Féin has had a, an extraordinary result. Now, uh, it's a very different Sinn Féin, uh, of course, to yeah. the Sinn Féin of 1986. Uh, its leaders have no connection at all uh, to the period of armed conflict. Uh, their leaders are increasingly women, uh, young women. Uh, and, of course, they are talking about, in the case of this recent election, when they could avoid it, they were talking about everything else but partition. They were talking about the acute social and economic problems faced by the mass of the people in, uh, in the Irish Republic. Um, Fianna Foyle also is not the Fianna Foyle that it used to be. I mean, I made the point earlier. If we'd been talking 30 years ago, the obvious coalition here would have been Fianna Foyle, which called itself the Republican Party, and Sinn Féin. But because Fianna Foyle are not what they were, and because Sinn Féin are not what they were, that lash-up looks to me exceedingly unlikely. Is that how it looks to you? Yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely um, some personality politics in this as well. Um, as you say, Sinn Féin, uh, the optics of Sinn Féin is, is, is fairly fascinating. It's a party that you know, has a lot of young people, a lot of young elected representatives. A lot of them are women. You know, a lot of them um, have no connection at all with with armed conflict, with the IRA, with the Troubles, because, frankly, a lot of them were, were in short trousers in, in, in those days. So Sinn Féin has changed. It's moved on an awful lot in the last few years. Um, Mary Lou MacDonald, who is the, the Dublin politician, who's the president of Sinn Féin, took over from Gerry Adams about 18 months ago, is, is a pretty compelling figure. She's a, a, a charismatic, confident woman. Um, and, and in the world of Irish politics, which can sometimes be a little bit sexist as well in the doll, she's very good at slapping down some of the boys um, and I think there's, there's there's a certain degree of 
personality um, difference difference that, that that's that's creeping in here. Michal Martin, the former Irish Foreign Minister, who's the the leader of uh, Fianna Foil and and Leo Varadkar, of course, the the current Taoiseach and leader of Fine Gael. Um, I don't think they particularly all three of them get on. Um, I think that's 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 fair to say. But I think what we're likely to see, given the numbers and given this is now three party politics, and, and effectively there's got to be a deal between two of those three parties to form a government, is we're likely to see if I can borrow your phrase, George, the mother of all U-turns on behalf of either Fine Gael or Fianna Foyle, and they'll probably try and do a deal with Mary Lou Macdonald, perhaps on a supply and 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 and, and, and confidence basis. But I don't think that will wash. I think what Sinn Féin are trying to do at the moment is, is to see where the numbers settle with some of the other smaller parties and to see if it's theoretically possible to stitch something together with the Greens on some of the other smaller left-wing parties. I don't think the numbers are there for them to be able to do that, but I think they want to be seen to try to do that first rather than, if you like, jump into bed with one of the other two big parties who've taken quite a kicking, really, um, in, this, in, this, in this election. Fine Gael has, has suffered a fairly precipitous decline. Uh, Leo Varadkar's personal ratings um, and, and Fine Gael's ratings were doing pretty well six months ago. In some respects, the, the, the Irish public have, have, have been there supporting him in terms of the Brexit negotiations, where he seemed to have done very well in, in terms of in terms of the, the, the outcome there. But it's not translated through into domestic political support, because as you say, although Ireland's got a very fast-growing economy and very low unemployment, there are big issues in terms of quality of life, in terms of health services, in terms of homelessness, and particularly the cost of housing, which have become massive issues in this campaign, which Sinn Féin um, very cleverly has, has positioned itself as the centre-left uh, response to that, um, very much in the kind of guise of a European um, centre-left socialist party. Um, so, so, so you know, it's it's managed to it's managed to put the issue of Irish unity and and partition, as you were saying, to one side and fight this election on domestic uh, domestic politics and domestic issues, where the, there is a real sense that the, the, the current Fine Gael government was very very weak. Varadkar's the big loser. Uh, can we can we rule him out now? He can't continue as as the prime minister can he i think it's very difficult given given where they are and and effectively um you know Sinn Féin has topped the, the popular vote but that doesn't necessarily translate through to winning the most seats because there's 160 members of the of the Dáil and, and Sinn Féin has only st stood candidates uh, 42 candidates so it can only it can only get a third of the vote if it wins every seat that it's put forward which it won't do so so you, you end up with this quite protracted situation where all three parties may get similar levels of seats I think it will be very difficult for, for Leo Varadkar to emerge from this and carry on as Taoiseach. I think what may happen is that there is, um, there is a deal with Sinn Féin where Sinn Féin may take uh, the kind of lion's share of, of, of control of the government and perhaps Mary Lou Macdonald will become Taoiseach if the numbers were there. Um, but it may be perfectly likely that, that Leo Varadkar may find himself with a knife in his back, metaphorically, from his own side. Um, there are some fairly ambitious Fine Gael ministers who will, I think, have said to him that, look, you, you know, you've not run a good campaign, which which he hasn't. Um, you've not got um, to grips with some of these quality of life issues that have been there for quite a while. Um, and, and actually, kind of, you've had your turn, Leo, and, and you were very keen to thrust the knife yourself into Enda Kenny, his predecessor. So there's not a lot of love lost there in, in the leading lights in, in Fine Gael. Well, uh, Kevin, explain, why, why did Sinn Féin put up so few candidates. I think I think it was just the sense that um, the gains that they would make would be fairly modest. 
Um, six months ago in the European elections and the local elections uh, in, in the Irish Republic, Sinn Féin didn't do brilliantly well. So there's, there was a sense, I think, a worry that if that was a similar result and, and they put forward a full slate of candidates, what would happen in multi-member constituencies is that, that that small number of votes may, may sort of divide between three candidates and actually it would be better to have one Sinn Féin candidate in some of, in some of these seats to maximise the Sinn Féin vote. Now, I mean, it looks it looks today as, you know, a, a pretty disastrous tactic in that respect, ironically, given they've done so well in the, in the share of the vote. So that, that they can only top out, I think, you know, probably some people are saying they may get up to 40 seats tonight. High 30s, probably. Um, that's not enough to form a government on their own. So they would need to go and try and do a deal, as I, as I say, to start with, with some of the other smaller parties, the Greens and some of the left-wing parties that are elected to the Dáil as well. But the numbers aren't there for them to do that. Um, I think that really there's got to be a deal between um, two of the three big parties in Irish politics tonight, which is Sinn Féin, Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle. So Leo Varadkar may return. I don't think he's going to return as Taoiseach, though. Now, you are, as I said, famously the author of uh, the very best book on the inevitability of Irish unity, reunification. As we speak tonight, without knowing the full results, are we closer uh, to Irish unity than we were a week ago? I think definitely. Um, I think, I think the, 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 the rise in Sinn Féin's support, however that pans out, whether they enter government or whether they don't, I think the, 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 the debate in Irish politics changes, I think, quite, quite seriously um, tonight. I think the two big parties, as you alluded to at the start, uh, Michal Martin, the leader of Fianna Foyle, which is traditionally the Green Party of, of Irish politics, um, founded by Eamon de Valera, um, you know, the Republican Party as it styles itself has done very, very little in recent years to bring about or bring about a discussion about Irish unity and, and actually has been quite hostile to it. Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's evidence that um, people within the party who are much greener than the current leadership under Micheál Martin um, would be very keen to, 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 if they have to do a deal, to do it with Sinn Féin. And it may be that Micheál Martin is another victim of tonight's result as well. I mean, he's, he's not played, a, he's not played um, a blinder in this campaign, as hasn't Varadkar. They've both been outclassed by uh, Mary Lou Macdonald, who is just, you know, streets ahead of them in terms, in terms of being a, an effective communicator and campaigner. So, so we may see over the next 48 hours the leaders of both of those political parties um, falling by the wayside as people within those parties look to try and do a deal. Um, I don't think there's going to be much chance of the two main parties working together. They have been doing for the last three or four years anyway. Fianna Foyle has backed up Leo Varadkar's Fine Gael, and, and that relationship hasn't worked desperately well. You've, you've basically got a cartel where the two of them have tried to keep Sinn Féin out of the equation for the last few years. And tonight, really, that, that, that policy, that cordon sanitaire that they've tried to instill in Dublin politics just isn't going to last. Sing hallelujah. Kevin, remind us where we can get your, your book. <laughs> it's certainly online and, and it's in all good bookshops and a few bad ones as well. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kevin Marr. Thanks, our, George. Uh, uh, Irish expert, been helping us for some years now on the mother of all talk shows. Let's take, uh, go straight to the lines. Uh, about Ireland, here's Brian in Ireland. Go ahead, Brian. Hi, George. How are you doing? Good. I'm a happy man tonight. Yes, yes. Uh, you're one among many. <laughs> I lit a candle in Moscow uh, for this outcome. Uh, I should have lit 32. You should have. Thanks, comrade. Kermagos. Thank you. Go ahead. 
Uh, yeah, Chico's the gentleman you had on there. He basically summed it all up. I think you know, um, in terms of Sinn Fein, weren't expecting this. They were. They did earlier. I was talking to some Sinn Fein activists uh, on Monday, and they expected highest they would get would be thirty-two. And at that stage, they were realising they hadn't uh, put enough candidates into certain areas. There were several of their candidates, up to 22 of their candidates now, have gone through on the first preference vote. And had they, on a, on a huge first preference vote, not just, you know, getting over the quota, but getting over the quota by some several thousand. So they could have easily have brought in a second candidate. And in some places, like Desi Ellis could have brought in maybe another, a third candidate, you know. So they've kind of been unfortunate that they didn't put that in but as your caller uh, as the gentleman you had on talking says about six or seven months ago this was unthinkable it just didn't look like it was going to happen at all what are the main reasons brian why it has happened um it has an awful lot to do with a total disenchantment with neoliberal politics um politics of spin people who live who are spending most of their lives in their cars, have to pay huge amounts to put their children into care when they go to work, don't get to see their families. These people are, are unhappy. They've been told all the time that there's been, the economy's doing great, that there's full employment, that there's this, that there's that, but their lives aren't getting any better. So there's a, a real disenchantment among ordinary working people. And Finna Gale and Fianna Fáil don't talk to those people. Sinn Féin kind of are better at speaking to them. They uh, can talk to them in their own language. Whereas uh, the Finnick Gale is a real private school um, theme running through their front bench and they just don't get the problems that people on mortgages who have to travel three hours a day to work have. Uh, so they just, they're just really cut off. And what really summed it up, I think, was the Black and Tan's uh, commemoration of the RIC, they just totally could not see how ridiculous that sounded to Irish people. And it really backfired. I think it wasn't the key thing in this, but it did have a, a part to play in invigorating. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a Marie Antoinette moment. Uh, why don't they yeah. eat cake? If they don't have bread, Absolutely. why don't they eat cake? Let's, have, let's build a monument uh, to the Black and Tan's that slaughtered us. Uh, this was a kind of madness from Varadkar. Uh, why did Fina Foyle, the so-called Republican Party, go along with that? Well, in, in they quickly, I think, they, I think they would have gone along with it, <laughs> but then they quickly realized what way it was going. Um, so a mayor, so the first mayor who was invited, who refused to go that to was this... Cork, uh, the mayor of Cork. Was it, it was the mayor of Clare started first. Okay. He was a Fianna Fáil mayor, and he refused. And then, of course, then the Cork mayor went, and then, of course, Sinn Féin obviously weren't going to go. And then it just took on a bit of a snowball effect, and it was nothing that uh, Charlie Flanagan or Leo Varadkar could say that could make it any better. Yeah. And you have to remember these the people... Like, the at the top of the top 20, though. Yes, it did. It did. <laughs> and I think that, you know, that kind of feels good... Uh, you know, the, the, the kind of feel-good uh, feeling factor got into the Sinn Féin kind of base and uh, they started getting out and, and they started feeling something. And then there was an awful lot of other things, you know, there was a lot of homeless people. There was a gentleman, a uh, homeless gentleman, 
in on the banks of uh, the canal up in Dublin. He was uh, picked up by a digger. Uh, they didn't realise he was in his tent. They badly hurt the man. Uh, stuff like that. The, 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 the trolleys of people in the hospitals. Um, uh, there was a vicious murder, a gangland murder in Drogheda in the in County Loud. It was just a culmination and almost a perfect storm. So the kind of and also they were pushing Brexit. They were saying, "Oh, Brexit, we, we've handled Brexit." But people in Ireland didn't really care. People were worried about. They're more worried about their health. They're more worried about the lack of housing, mortgages, and things like that. Well, that's the best call of the night, Brian. Don't be a stranger. That was fantastic, Brian. In Ireland, let's go to Austria and talk to Yvonne on the same subject, I think. Yvonne, welcome. Hello, 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 George. How are you? Very nice um, to hear from you, Yvonne. Uh, I'm, I'm ringing up again, yeah, on the same subject because I'm a Dubliner, actually, to refer. So, um, my question was because I just tuned in when you were speaking about the cost of Irish unity. And the thing was, like, I'm, I'm celebrating in my heart, it's beautiful. This result for us today, I see it as an Irish victory and a step towards Irish unity. But my parents used to always say to me, Ireland couldn't afford Northern Ireland. And I tuned in to you and you were just saying the same thing. And so I would like you to kind of um, expand on this. Mm. What do people actually mean? My parents used to tell me that when I was a kid, and I'd sit there and I'd say, oh, yeah, we couldn't afford it. And the other day I was talking to somebody and they said, now, what are you talking about? There's another piece of land, actually. You know, when was that a bad thing that you got another piece of land? So could you actually expand on this? Because it was well, a, I, like... A, I, I can't because uh, it, it's, first of all, absolutely nonsensical uh, to me. Yeah. And secondly, yeah. even if it was true, what difference would that make? Uh, it yeah. cost Germany, West Germany... Uh, to absorb East Germany, uh, but that, the, the, the reunification of their people was more important than pound shillings and pence or the German uh, equivalent. So, uh, I mean, it's like, uh, it's impossible for me to compute why that would even be an issue. Uh, but there are some things uh, in the north of Ireland that are better than in the Republic. Uh, the health service is free in the north of Ireland and it isn't free uh, in the Republic, uh, there are benefits that the uh, people in the North have that some people in the South don't have. On the other hand, wages are higher in the South than they are in the North. These kind of things will have to be ironed out and negotiated and a transition uh, agreed, no, no doubt. The Americans would help that transition, no doubt mm. the Europeans would. Uh, hallelujah, we now have the gate open. Uh, to yeah. the reunification of a small island that's been partitioned for a hundred years against yeah. its will and drowned in blood. Uh, let's, let's celebrate the fact exactly. that, the, that the party, which really meant it when it said it stood for Irish reunification, as opposed to others that pretended to, has apparently triumphed in this election. Yvonne. Thanks very much for the call. I, I need to press on. Dave is in the southwest on EU defence budgets. Dave, go on. Uh, thanks for taking the call, George. Yeah, it's, um, it's ironic that you that you spoke previously about um, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. And then uh, now Sinn Féin and Ireland and policy. 
There, um, there is a policy, actually, that Mag- Margaret Thatcher and Sinn Féin currently uh, held together, which was they both opposed European or commitment to European Defence Union. So that, I don't know that if Sinn Féin still do. Well, um, well, they did last time I looked. Um, if, okay. if it's not, I'll stand to be corrected. So, um, no, no, you're probably right. You're probably right. What, I, what, what I'm getting towards um, is obviously Margaret had, you know, what it turned out to be incoherent defence policy because the, the, her saying no to Jack Delors in 1984 for his request for European Defence Union, um, but it was never articulated in the Tory party since. And I, I, I firmly believe on from conversations with Lord James of Blackheath that there's a three-line whip in the party to keep quiet on it. Now, this is all important now because the deputy leader of the German CDU, Johann Wadfel, has openly called um, last week for the French nuclear deterrent to go into EU or NATO uh, command and control. And that concerns us because currently we have both bilateral and multilateral defence agreements with the French. And as I understand it, our Trident fleet and nuclear attack fleet jointly go out in a joint fashion with the French nuclear deterrent. So this concerns us directly in two ways, not just that physical way, because currently Boris's future uh, paperwork with Europe has membership and commitment to European Defence Union under consideration, and those are the words, under Mm. consideration. So whilst we've had this silence of um, not articulating any of this during the Brexit debate, either by vote, leave or remain, we now have the top end of nuclear capability and weaponising the EU on the agenda. And this is not the first time I've picked this up. It's picked, I've picked it up three times previously. One from a Rusi advisor, Nick Whitney, saying that the British and French nuclear deterrent could and should be extended to the EU unless Trump is impeached or has trained. And we also have uh, Max Hoffman being reported in Deutsche Welle um, some time ago saying that the French and British nuclear deterrent should form the European shield. So uh, my, my question really to George and probably the listeners, if they're able to interact, is does the prospect of an unelected EU president and council having nuclear weapons capability under their command and control of an unaccountable executive over the people of Europe worry you? Uh, well, it certainly scares the life out of me. It's an absolute monstrosity of an idea. And the point that you make about the veil of silence, uh, which has been dropped over this whole thing, is yes. equally uh, troubling. Uh, yes. It would be bad enough if we were being talked into uh, this European Defence Force uh, in, a, in an open way. Uh, but the idea that we might be being silently marched into it is, uh, is even more uh, unacceptable. I, I'm, I'm unlike you, I suspect, Dave. I'm against the European Defence uh, Union and I'm against NATO. Uh, I yep. want Britain to be an entirely independent country uh, with its yep. own uh, control over its own military and its yep. own foreign policy, which is the, which is the parent of military uh, policy. Defence is the daughter of uh, foreign policy. Uh, But if there's one thing worse than being in NATO, it would be being in a European defence force where absolutely unelected and unaccountable people had their finger on the trigger. Don't you agree? I absolutely 100% agree, George. I mean, NATO isn't perfect. It's not the conversation I'm having at the moment. I've campaigned heavily since the start of Brexit 
against European Defence Union, mm. despite there being some kind of silent three-line whip within the Tory party not to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But this concerns everybody in Britain through two other ways, because it's not for free. There will be a bill if it goes through. And currently, a lot of the wording that we're finding, the wordsmithing coming out of number 10, is that they're saying that our commitment is unwavering to European security. And this is a lovely little cover phrase, because security as it stands at the moment in terms of the paperwork, the bureaucratic paperwork, covers defence. Now, and this is where it concerns everyone. If the Germans are talking about conscription from, 35, from uh, 16 to 35 both sexes on a pan-EU basis, and they want one single European defence contractor, one only, single point control of the industry. So as a data point where our, let's go back to the sort of nuclear uh, nuclear fleet is concerned, currently the steel that's being procured by the MOD for the uh, for the new astute holes that are, that, are, that are coming in up at Barron Furnace there, it's being procured from France. It's not being procured from Britain. So uh, this, is one of the, this is one of the issues that we've got to start talking about. That the well, EU I'm, glad, you, I'm glad you've raised it, Dave. We don't have time to do it justice, uh, but I'll make sure it's on our agenda in, uh, in subsequent weeks. It's a very, well, very important call. It is very important. Please feel free to come back to me. I'd love I to will do. I will do. Make sure we've got Dave's telephone number, please. We need him on at more length. Uh, uh, now, the poll, which film should win Best Picture? A, 1917, 35% of you, up three. B, Parasite, 15%, down three. C, The Joker, 50%, no chains. If you want to cast your vote on those three films, which one should win Best Picture? Uh, you can do so uh, on my Twitter. It's Oscar night. It's the week of the demise of Kirk Douglas, who did more than any other single individual to destroy the McCarthyite witch hunt and blacklist, which was a result of that witch hunt. And it's the day in which I unveil the very first member of the Mother of All Talk Shows Hall of Fame. And my nomination goes to one of the greatest men and one of the greatest Americans who ever lived. I refer to Paul Reloy Robson, who was not just a wonderful singer, not just a wonderful actor, but as a human being was an absolute giant of a man, both figuratively and metaphorically. Paul Robson was the ultimate victim of the blacklist. Paul Robeson actually got his passport taken away. Paul Robeson had to sing to the people down a telephone line in St Pancras Hall in London, a packed hall by the way, who knew he couldn't come because they'd taken his passport. But they turned out, bought tickets and stood in an ovation in St. Pancras Town Hall to a rendition of Old Man River by Paul Robeson down a telephone line tied to a microphone like this. Paul Robeson's voice, his presence, his courage in facing up to racism, facing up to all the prejudices and bigotries of American life in his era standing up to the Cold War division of the world, standing in solidarity 
with the people of Russia, with the people of China, perhaps above all with the people of Spain. As an activist here in London, when a student at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, with the people of Republican Spain. He was born Paul Leroy Robson in April 1898 in Princeton, New Jersey. His father, William, a preacher, was actually born a slave. Robson was a bass baritone singer and stage and film actor who became famous both for his cultural accomplishments and for his political activism. He was educated at Rutgers College, where I've spoken actually. He was only the third black student to go there. And Columbia University. He was also a star athlete in his youth. He studied Swahili and linguistics at SOAS in London in 1934. His political activities began with his involvement with unemployed workers, with the miners, here in Britain and with anti-imperialist students that he met here in Britain and worked with in support of the Republican cause in the Spanish Civil War and his lifelong opposition to fascism. In the United States, he also became active in the civil rights movement and other social justice campaigns. His sympathies for the Soviet Union and communism and his criticism of the United States government and its foreign policies caused him to be blacklisted during the McCarthy era. Paul Robeson worked briefly as a lawyer, but he renounced a career in law due to the widespread racism he found there and decided to concentrate on his musical career, appearing on Broadway, on the London stage, performing Shakespeare, and in a series of films. Paul Robeson believed that trade unionism was crucial to civil rights and it became a mainstay of his political beliefs and he became a proponent of the union activist. In 1956, Paul Robeson was called before McCarthy's House Un-American Activities Committee after he refused to sign an affidavit affirming that he was not a communist. In his testimony, he invoked the Fifth Amendment and refused to reveal his political affiliations. When asked why he had not remained in the Soviet Union because of his affinity with its political ideology, Robeson replied, because my father was a slave and my people died to build the United States and I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you and no fascist minded people will drive me from it. At that hearing Robeson stated and I quote, whether I am or not a communist is irrelevant. The question is whether American citizens, regardless of their political beliefs or sympathies, may enjoy their constitutional rights. In 1957, still unable 
because they'd taken his passport to accept invitations to perform abroad. Robeson sang for audiences around the world, including in London, where 1,000 concert tickets sold out for his telephone concert at St Pancras Town Hall. We have to learn the hard way that there is another way to sing, he said. An appeal to the US Supreme Court to reinstate his confiscated passport was rejected, but over the telephone, Robeson was able to sing to audiences, including in London. On January 23rd, 1976, following complications from a stroke, Robeson died in Philadelphia at the age of 77. He lay in state in Harlem, and his funeral was held at his brother Ben's former parsonage. At the 2007 Edinburgh Fringe Festival, British-Nigerian actor Tayo Aluko, himself a baritone soloist, premiered his one-man show, Call Mr. Robeson, A Life with Songs, which has since toured various countries. And the film director, Steve McQueen, has also said he intends to film Paul Robeson's story. I hope he does. I know he would do it justice. The one-man stage show is a must. The books on Paul Robeson will repay many times the time you spend reading it. But when this show is over, go on to YouTube and listen to the great Paul Robeson sing and speak. His voice, his words ring out across the ages, across the continents. He was one of the greatest of all human beings and one of the greatest Americans. And I'm proud to say he is now number one in our Hall of Fame. Let's take two Scottish calls. John in Glasgow. John, on you go, sir. George, I heard you cruelly baiting and encouraging the caller from London earlier who was touting another Scottish independence referendum when really um, the whole debate, certainly in Scotland, has moved beyond that issue to one of a crisis of fundamental good governance uh, that makes these people look like uh, Japanese soldiers still in the jungles of Borneo who haven't heard World War II is over. The referendum was five years ago, and I would say probably many people who even voted for independence last time round are now more concerned with uh, the crisis in governance that exists today. Yeah, I mean, but that's one of the reasons why I'm in favour of having the referendum. I want to end this endless never-endum mentality uh, where Scotland goes down the tubes while the SNP live high on the hog. Oh, how high! And well, yeah. I, I, I think we need to defeat the SNP. We need to defeat this uh, pernicious uh, preoccupation of theirs to break up this small country. Well, the, the, whole, the whole issue, I think, uh, of another referendum, I mean, it's a bit like the people who wanted to have another uh, Brexit referendum. It really is uh, far, so far down people's priorities uh, here in Scotland, uh, from, from as far as I can see. Um, I mean, you have a government uh, and, a, and a party which, which nurtures and, uh, and promotes uh, vacuous non-entities 
uh, into senior positions running the country. You have a gentleman this week who was the Chancellor of Scotland resigning the night before his budget, who's also responsible for a project on a shipyard in the Clyde, the Clyde, which built ocean-going uh, liners. Uh, they can't even build a ferry to go across the Firth of Clyde. No, I'm well aware uh, of all of that, and it's good that you've reminded the audience uh, of it. However, uh, how do we measure whether the Scots want to have another referendum? Uh, we can measure it in the elections next May, uh, not this May coming, but the following May, so the elections to the Scottish Parliament in 21. That could be fought on that basis, will be presumably fought on that basis. That's one indicator. Opinion polls seem to suggest uh, that it's a close-run thing whether we should even have another referendum. But you're convinced the majority doesn't want one? I don't think people, uh, the majority of people, there are so many issues. Uh, everywhere you look, it's a catastrophe. Uh, we don't have to wait till May next year, George. Uh, we can have it in May this year if, if the desire is I want there. It. I want it in May this year. Right well, after the Alex Salmon trial, let's have the Indy Ref 2. Well, by rights, it's four years. Her mandate has expired. That be, it's a four-year mandate in these devolved assemblies. The mandate has expired. They say they can't get rid of these people who are now sitting on the back benches as independents because the law will make a law next week to, to allow recall of these people. But they won't do that. Very good. Uh, cogent points, John, as always. Let's go to Stephen in Glasgow, Hillhead, my first parliamentary constituency. Go on, Stephen. How you, how, you, how you getting on, Jordan? When are you coming back to Owl Head? Because this country in Scotland badly I couldn't afford to live in Hillhead. But I'm well, coming, I've got a, I'm coming a back to Scotland. To, You've got a spare room. I've got a spare room, Jordan. You and your wife or your partner or anything, you're more than welcome well, to come and stay with me. Yeah, that's very kind of you, but I've got six wings, uh, Stephen. I'll tell it's you hard, what, I've got a big garden it. shed. I've got a big garden shed, Jordan. You can get in there with the wings. Okay. All right, go ahead, Stephen. <laughs> this poor guy, Derek Mackay, what has he actually done wrong? He's been treated like a common criminal up here. Because they used the word grooming. He was, he was flattened by some young due to duty sexuality and the country's up in the arms. Yeah, you go to Phil Schofield and the other side, the TV world, he's in TV like a hero. And the way they're going, the Queen might end up nine him. I just think the whole country, if we've got a priority, he's all wrong. Yeah, but, uh, it's sad what the folk we've got. I mean, all yeah. he said was, you've got a lovely haircut. Oh, I like, I like your aftershave. Does that mean if I say that to one of my pals, that I'm gay or I'm grooming? You see what I'm coming for, George? Uh, I do, uh, I do. Um, but there's a number of differences between Mackay and uh, Philip Schofield. Uh, Mackay was a government minister. In fact, the second minister in the country. The Chancellor of the Exchequer. And so there's an issue of power relationships. There's we're also... We haven't seen the Constitution, George. You've got to be straight and no heterosexual or homosexual or homophobic. We haven't that say that you cannot have a partner and this ideal world we're in now that you can't have a boyfriend or again, you've got to have a girlfriend, you've got well, to be scorched by women. Uh, no, it say that, George? no, it doesn't say that and neither should no. it, neither should it nor, should it nor, nor will it. But, no, uh, but, but, Stephen, let me develop my point. Yes. Uh, cool. There were 
265 messages from Scotland's Chancellor of the Exchequer to a 16-year-old boy. It follows uh, that some of those messages began, this grooming or flirtation began uh, before the boy had reached the age of consent, which is 16. There's the second issue uh, that Derek Mackay was, as a powerful politician, in a, in, in a, a position, in a power uh, relationship to this schoolboy uh, who, when it began, was 15, uh, and that this was activity or behavior incompatible with holding high office. Uh, certainly the SNP have concluded that because uh, they've ditched them, suspended them, sacked them, uh, but it's uh, added to a sense. I mean, I've got to tell you, Stephen, every night is Burns night for the Scottish MPs of the SNP. Uh, they're in that bar in the House of Commons. Uh, they're at every reception. They're swallowing uh, rivers uh, of the best uh, alcohol. There's sing songs. There's affairs. There's marriage breakups. There's all kinds of high life in the SNP group at Westminster, as is well attested. It's all adding up to, and that's before Alec goes on trial uh, next month, it's all adding up to a sense, Stephen, that the SNP, that there's something rotten at the heart of the SNP, don't you think? I understand what you're saying, but see this country, the education, the transport, the taxis, the welfare, the no homeless in the street, the place was flourishing. This country would make a bunch of eyelids what his, what his sexuality was. Another thing is, this person did not complain to the police till the six years. So, he was in a... His mother so, did. No, you want to... Okay, let's go to another one, Will, for the, the Hall of Shame, Will. Let's come into the Hall of Shame. We'll put the two of them in here together. We have a royal family from the top. The one name, you know everyone is not a, a royal family. Everyone is converted in scandal. And even the riding to, to, to Andy, that whole family is a disgrace to, the, to this British monarchy. And I think the Queen... Should get the whole lot of them, get them on a bus, and leave this country because there's families you out of, of Moss Side in Manchester and get a family out of there and put them into that, into, into that big house. Powerful, powerful, the gutter. powerful stuff, Stephen in Hillhead. Thanks for that. Richard is in Manchester on Thatcher. Go ahead, Richard. Hello, George. That just came in perfect. Mrs. Thatcher and the person you were speaking to before. I don't think you knew much about uh, the way that people suffered, uh, particularly in the coal fields and when she closed everything down, the shipyards and, and yeah. everything, and she used the police force uh, as an army to, to beat them up, and many of my family were on the front line there. My father was a coal miner, and he was... Uh, he was a ripper down the pit all his life, and, uh, you know, he was a great guy. He was about your size, George, uh, and uh, he had the, the heart of a lion. But uh, he actually actually uh, didn't get on very well with Margaret Thatcher, mm. as you can imagine. And if that guy was to go to Durham today, particularly near the Sedgefield, which was uh, Blair's constituency, you would find families who never spoke to each other ever, ever, ever again. Although they've fathers. just elected a Tory MP, Richard. 
Pardon me? Yes, I know. That was, that was something uh, really good, because my wife came from up there. But uh, more to the point, George, you know, we talk about what is happening today. And it's very, very, very much, you know, we might have a modern way of life. But the politics are still the same. And I think uh, our new prime minister has got to start spreading the wealth around with, these, uh, yeah. with the people who, who, lent him, uh, who lent him their votes, don't I agree. you? I agree, absolutely. There needs to be a Brexit bonus for the North, for Scotland, for Wales, and, uh, and uh, uh, he'd be well advised, Boris Johnson, to get busy with that right now, uh, or he's not going to hold on to these places. Uh, if there's money, and we know there is, if there's a printing press, and we certainly know there is that, the banks know there is that, let's get printing some money, let's get distributing money uh, in the North, in Wales, in Scotland, let's do that, I agree with you, Rich. Absolutely brilliant, George. Can I just say that my young granddaughter, she's only 22, she's just written a screen stage play and radio play, which I'm hoping is going to get on very well, wow. called Letters to Lenny. It'd be near, near and dear to your heart. It's absolutely fantastic. Send it and to me, I... Richard. Send it to me. Uh, where do I send it, George? Uh, if you, uh, do you follow me on Twitter? Uh, no, I don't. I'm sorry. I'm uh, not up to that. I'll tell you I'm what, then. Own... We'll keep your uh, number. And I'll text you my email uh, after the show, okay? All right, you'll, you'll enjoy the first part of it, George. I'll send it down to you with, with, with delight. I'd love to, and give her my regards and my congratulations and best wishes. Uh, clear the decks. There's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma, last call. Yeah, I know, George. I, I really got um, quite a lot to say, but I haven't got time. Thought, no, you do. You've got four minutes. Oh, good. First of all, Paul Robeson, I wasn't going to speak about him, I was going to speak about, and I will, about the Jamaican deportations, but Paul Robeson, my 100% hero, I think you were fantastic, George, um, you made me shiver, and every time I hear him sing, I shiver, I mean, I could, I could tell you more about some personal things, but I haven't got time. But great, very good, very good. He, he was uh, a giant of a man in every respect. Yeah. His courage, his dignity, his beauty, his uh, cultural level, his Othello, his work, his Shakespearean acting, his film acting, uh, his showboat, his old man oh, river. Know. I mean, this is a man with a list of achievements and accomplishments that would put, you know, Hollywood and Broadway today to shame. And he did all that while being witch-hunted, Norma. Oh, he died when he was quite depressed, actually. Yeah. Anyway, I, did, I got to talk to you about Abu. Yeah. Because he was on about the Jamaican deportation. Yeah, I don't know enough and, about well, it. Well, I do. I'm just... Well, I don't know a lot, but I'm very upset about it because these people have done their time in prison. They've lived here all their lives. Um, if they were sent back, and they probably will be deported, they'd know nobody in Jamaica. They'd leave their wives, their children. And it's not right, George... Our government think it is the right thing to do. What do you think? Well, there can't be enough uh, Jamaicans in the country for me. Uh, there can't be enough uh, Afro-Caribbean people for me. Uh, they have added so much uh, to our national life. Where would we be without them? Uh, where would our football teams be? Where would our national football team be in England? Where would uh, our uh, television and screen and theatre be? Where would our music uh, scene be? But I totally love 
uh, the Afro-Caribbean community here in uh, Britain, and I know them and I'm close to them uh, very well indeed. But there is an issue, and I don't know enough about it. If people are here and they're not citizens and they're committing crimes... No, uh, then, they've done their time. They've well, done yeah, their you time. say done their time, but uh, there, is, uh, there is an issue. I don't know these people or their crimes, but there are some criminals I don't want to have here if I don't have to have them here. Do you follow me? But then if they've been in prison in Britain, they've done their time, they've lived here all their life, they are, well, they've got families, wives, children. This, when they go back, if they went back to Jamaica, they'd know nobody. And to me, they're just the same as anybody else who's lived here and gone to prison and come out and probably been fined. Well, and they're the not, of course, not legally, because they're not citizens. Yeah, but that was a bit of a mess, wasn't it? Yeah, that's a, that, if it's a Windrush issue, yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. And we've also now discovered, uh, or others have now discovered, I knew it when I opposed it in Parliament at the time, that you can actually have your citizenship taken away from you uh, on the fiat of the government, uh, which is uh, an argument for another time. I'm glad, Norma, you cast some light on that subject. I really should have known more about it than I did. My only excuse is I've been away and traveling uh, over the last week when this story uh, arrived. 1917, 37% of you think that should be the Oscar winner. Parasite, just 15%. Joker, 48%. So a relatively close run thing, just like the Irish election uh, may turn out to be a close run thing. But uh, I'm celebrating tonight. It's like uh, St. Patrick's Day for me. I lit a candle just the other day and thanks God, Sinn Féin won the election. Bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.